Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, the 40th anniversary of human beings landing on the moon is celebrated with the unveiling of the Apollo Monument at Space View Park in Titusville. Well, if you don't remember and understand the mistakes of the past, you'll make them all again in the future. We'll talk with Iris Wall, who was a cattle rancher in the 1930s and 40s. As long as I was big enough to hang on to that saddle horn and go, I went. We'll visit the Mission San Luis in Tallahassee. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Man on the moon. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh... Oh, jeez. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Armstrong is on the moon, Neil Armstrong, 38-year-old American, standing on the surface of the moon. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Forty years ago, CBS News anchor Walter Cronkite shared the amazement of his viewers as images of Neil Armstrong walking on the moon were broadcast on Earth. Historians, humanities scholars, and sociologists say the moment that the first human being set foot on the moon, the modern era ended and the postmodern age began. Florida history, then, encompasses the bookends of the modern era, with the Spanish discovery of the New World on one end and the launch of humans to the moon on the other. On the 40th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission, a monument to the Apollo program was unveiled at Spaceview Park in Titusville. Well, if you don't remember and understand the mistakes of the past, you'll make them all again in the future. Charlie Mars is president of the U.S. Spacewalk of Fame Foundation, the group that raised the money to design and build the monuments in Spaceview Park. Mars was involved with the Apollo program from the early design phase through the last mission as the Lunar Module Chief Project Engineer. The Apollo monument at Spaceview Park consists of a huge stainless steel A encircled by a bronze earth and moon, 12 bronze panels, and a life-size statue of John F. Kennedy at a podium. Lining the walkway around the monument are pylons engraved with the names of astronauts. Charlie Mars. We have always had the concept of the big stainless steel A with the Earth and the Moon and the panels around the base of the monument telling the Apollo story. And that's what all the big bronze panels do. The pylons, we really sort of came to grips with how we were going to mount the Apollo bronzed handprints and the names of the workers about five or six years ago. And that was what you see now, which is individual pylons. It takes 15 to accommodate all 42 of the astronauts that flew Apollo. And we define Apollo not only as all the lunar missions, but Skylab and ASTP. So you'll notice on pylon 15, we also have the astronaut or the cosmonaut handprints. Sculptor Sandra Storm created the Apollo monument in Spaceview Park. Her work includes the Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore Memorial in Vieira, 
a religious monument in Kansas, and a World War II memorial in Kissimmee. The uh, space workers formed a foundation, I think it was even 20 or 20 or more years ago, to do the monuments for the space program, Apollo, Gemini, Mercury. So they already have the Gemini and Mercury in place. And uh, then they were searching for sculptors to do the Apollo monument. And they did look at uh, quite a few sculptors, national, nationally known. And um, then I was, uh, someone suggested they interview me. I, I would think I was on an, uh, another memorial at the time. But um, uh, for any sculptor to be able to do a monument of, of this important, this such an important event in history is just incredible. Storm says she always tries to tell a story in her work and that the Apollo Monument provided her a unique opportunity to do that. Storm designed the Apollo Monument with its giant A, 12 bronze panels, and life-size President Kennedy 10 years before it was completed. In 98, I, I designed the whole monument and decided, well, they also wanted somewhere to have the, the A on it. So we thought it would be beautiful to have it on top and uh, make it taller and more more beautiful and everything. And I knew we needed a lot of space to tell the story because I had everybody seen all the Apollo books and and uh, so I decided on the 12 panels and each panel is four foot wide and they go up to seven foot tall. Kind of represents an orbit the the slanted panels do and. Um, Got all the pictures together and uh, tried to include everything that these that the space workers and the astronauts know, and put them in order. And the importance of Kennedy, everybody knows that too, a speech about going to the moon before the decade was out. So uh, we wanted to include that. They 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 were the ones that actually insisted on that. I had thought of it, but they, they really wanted to include that. What was once the furthest outpost on the old frontier of the West will be the furthest outpost on the new frontier of science and space. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Most viewers are first struck by the Apollo Monument's huge A, are then drawn to the image of Kennedy at his podium, and then absorb the 12 bronze panels surrounding the A. It goes to the right, around the circle, and uh, it, it actually shows some of their first sketches. I sculpted those, drew those in, and then it's all relief, um, except Kennedy is three-dimensional. And then the podium, and on the front of the podium, is to me one of the most amazing photographs from that time. Uh, it's the actual, some photographer thought to turn the camera back towards the audience and take a couple of pictures. I think I, think I saw three of them maybe. Uh, and I combined a couple of them with the faces. And uh, they're looking up at the, this is actually the Apollo launch, this launch, you know, the, the most important launch. And uh, it's just a beautiful scene, and we, I printed some of his speech on the front of the podium. But then the rest of it tells the story, and I was hoping to get the actual panel with the launch opposite of Kennedy and bring it out a little bit, and it just it worked out anyway. It just is amazing how... And it ends up at the end, then, with the splashdown of the Apollo 11. After using photographs and space worker interviews to inspire her designs, Sandra Storm turned to the difficult work of actually creating the monument. I had started out with the space worker, uh, one of the space workers building the panels. 
uh, out of four foot wide plywood and then uh, a frame, very sturdy frame, because we needed to keep it very flat. It's a, it's a nightmare for a foundry to do flat panels. Nobody wanted to do it anyway. And a lot of most of the foundries, uh, as our, my foundry, American Bronze in Sanford, they found out later nobody would do it. They say, you guys are crazy, they said. Uh, it's very difficult because every time you weld on it, anywhere on a flat panel, it warps. Then you have to straighten it, re-weld, uh, grind it. And I, I do most of that myself so that the uh, I keep the, the artwork the way it was when I first did it. So I'm, I want to be able to grind on the face every, every piece of the artwork myself. So I spent years in the foundry. This was an eight-year project. Storm became so personally involved with her subject that she included the faces of her children on one of the bronze panels watching the Apollo 11 launch. Yeah, there was a couple of blurry faces, uh, so, and they looked young, very young. So at that time, I, I, it was just perfect to use my son's face and my daughter's face. And, so I'm, I'm really excited about that. Hundreds of space workers and others came to the unveiling ceremony of the Apollo Monument in Spaceview Park. Titusville Mayor Jim Tully offered an informal resolution. Whereas words are insufficient to describe the awesome achievement of Apollo, and where words are insufficient to describe the pride the awesome pride in every American heart as we watched our astronauts walk on the moon for the first time. And whereas words are insufficient to describe the incredible dedication of the Apollo team all over the country and, and here at the Kennedy Space Center. Therefore, be it resolved that this beautiful work of art, and beautiful it is, where do you see it? Be it resolved that this beautiful work of art is a fitting and lasting visual tribute to all three. All in favor, signify by saying aye. Aye. I think the motion, the resolution passes unanimously. Lisa Malone is Director of External Relations for NASA. Like many NASA employees today, Malone is a descendant of an Apollo program worker. Lisa's father, Joe Malone, led a team of draftsmen. Lisa Malone represented NASA at the Apollo Monument unveiling. On July 16, 1969, with their usual painstaking attention to details and absolute focus, the Kennedy Space Center team launched the Saturn V on the legendary Apollo 11 mission. It is estimated that between 750,000 to 1 million people came to visit Brevard County to see this historic launch, to see what the Kennedy Space Center was up to. This whole street here, all along US-1 was filled with people. This Indian River was filled with boaters, and the people wanted to come and see what we were doing. Everyone all over the world stopped to see what was going on down here at Kennedy Space Center. We often speak of the astronauts during this anniversary, but the men who walked on the moon were figuratively standing on the shoulders of the thousands of Space Center workers who helped, them put, who helped put them on the surface, surface of Earth's celestial neighbor and the astronauts yesterday actually paid tribute to all of you in the ceremony that we had out of the Saturn V Center. The Apollo employees belong to a generation that will forever be remembered as the greatest space generation. The decade of the 1960s. Astronaut Al Worden was the command module pilot for Apollo 15 in the summer of 1971.
At the unveiling of the Apollo monument, Worden praised the workers who made the Apollo program possible. Forty years ago, we as a team did something incredible. Put a guy on the moon. It had never been done before. Going to be a long time before it gets done again, and you are the folks that made it happen. We had 600 people at the Saturn V Center yesterday, and we said the same thing to all the KSC employees that are there today. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I got it. I got to tell you, I'm not going to talk about how to pee in space. I do that all the time. You don't need that. <laughs> you know, you know what I, you know what I tell people when I talk to them. I say, you know, I'm getting older. I was. My flight was 38 years ago. In fact, in the all round next week, I launched on the 26th of July, 38 years ago. So that's coming up next week. Uh, you know who? Forty years ago, the flight of Apollo 11 changed the course of human history. As Charlie Mars explains, the economic impact on Brevard County and the small town of Titusville was significant. Oh, no telling how many millions of dollars. Were poured into the economy from workers and hotels and restaurants and gift shops and rental cars, airline tickets. So you know,、uh, a tourist attraction. That's what it was for every shot. In addition to overseeing Spaceview Park and the monuments there, Charlie Mars operates the Space Walk of Fame Museum nearby. The museum is pretty much memorabilia that the workers had with them. They. You know, carried them home、uh, by mistake or on purpose. Who knows? We don't ask. And those items that we have in the museum were mainly donated by both NASA and contractor workers, retired as well as active. We have some things from the astronauts. We have some things from NASA Kennedy Space Center.、Um, that's what we try and do: is give people a feel. For what it was like being a worker. While Charlie Mars is dedicating his life to preserving and celebrating NASA's past, he's not optimistic about the space agency's future. I think they will never reach the pinnacle that we reached on Apollo.、Uh, it's gotten more political. It's gotten more involved as far as numbers of folks required to make decisions,、uh, more procedures required, and what's caused that mainly has been the accidents that we've had. Starting with Apollo One, obviously things got a little tighter. They got more people involved. Then we had Challenger in Columbia, which has really added to the numbers of people required on almost any decision-making process. The Apollo Monument at Spaceview Park in Titusville was unveiled in recognition of the 40th anniversary of Apollo 11, which brought the first human beings to the surface of the moon.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Check out our upcoming special events, listen to archived editions of this program, become a member of the Society, and much more. In the decades before statehood and well into the 20th century, the cattle industry drove Florida's economy far more than citrus or tourism. As Janie Gould reports, 70 years ago, Iris Wall worked as a Florida rancher. Iris Wall, a rancher and fifth-generation Floridian, spent most of her childhood on the back of a horse, cow hunting with her father. At that time, the 1930s and 40s, screwworm reached epidemic proportions among livestock all over the southeast. We had to root and doctor all the time, you know. We just rode every day. Every calf that was born had screwworms. Every calf that was born. Or every time you marked, and you know in those days you really marked, I don't even mark my cow's ears today. When I bring my calves to the pen, I just tip their ear. That indicates to me when I see that calf out there in the pasture that he's already been to the pens, so I know approximately how old he is. See. But in those days, you marked your ears. And when you did, they got screwworms in them. Every single time there was blood, the fly would lay the eggs on there, and they'd hatch out. And they'd eat the side of their head half off, you know, and they, every calf, their navel would be that big around. What we did, we would squirt that benzene on it, and uh, it would kill them, and they would float kind of the surface, and then you'd scrape them off, you know, and then squirt some more down in there to you sure that you got all the worms out of there. When you were sure that the last ones were dead out of there, you had a big old thick, they called it smear it, so it, it looks almost like asphalt, really. We just put that all over that wound, covered it, every bit of that budding cup. And sometimes you have to doctor them again. Not always, sometimes one time we'll do it, you know. That was a major epidemic in It Florida. was a major epidemic. You know, I often say this, when we first heard that the University of Florida was going to turn out all these sterile flies, we just laughed. We thought that was the funniest thing we ever heard in our life, but it worked. Very rarely is there a screw room found in the state of Florida today. How did they do it? They t- turned out sterile. Male flies. <laughs> That's what they did. Just thousands of them, I guess. They did it with airplanes. So you were a cow hunter from the time you were a child. A child. That's right. As long as I was big enough to hang on to that saddle horn and go, I went. One of the things Iris Wall remembers about her early years were the midday meals that she and her father brought in their saddlebags. They'd have white bacon, also known as fatback, and baked sweet potatoes. There were always plenty of sweet potatoes. The family grew them. And if we had them, Mama would throw in a little can of uh, beans. We had a little old teeny sack that she'd put some flour in. We'd stop for dinner time. We carried our feet in a croaker sack on our saddle and we'd feed our horses. We had a number two peach can. He'd build him a bale on it. He'd hang that on the back of the saddle. He'd take that off and dip him up some water. And he'd build a neat little old fire and he'd put that coffee pot on there and make that coffee. And then he would take that darn uh, flour, nothing in the world but pond water and flour and salt. He had a little old frying pan that just fit right in his saddle pockets. He'd fry that white bacon, and he'd put that salt and that flour and that pond water and make a little bit of dough and put it in that grease from that fat bag. 
it would be the best you have ever seen in your life. He could just take that thing when he got just right and just flip it over like that. Sort of a pancake. <laughs> he called it a hoe cake. He would cook that fat back. He would put that on a palmetto stalk. He'd trim it off just as neat as anything in the world and stick it by that fire. And he'd cook a little bit. He'd pour a little bit of water on it once in a while and cook till it was good, you know. Every now and then I tell one of my grandkids, I said, I'm going to take you out in the woods and cook you a cowboy dinner. Iris Wall was named Florida's Woman of the Year in Agriculture in 2006. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers on the web at myfloridahistory.org. A century before the Spanish built missions in California, there was already a mighty chain of settlements stretching across the Florida region between Gainesville and Tallahassee. Bill Dudley takes us to the reconstructed Spanish mission San Luis. On a scenic hilltop just a few miles from our state's capital in Tallahassee stand the reconstructed buildings of the mission San Luis. Once it was a small city with a garrison of soldiers, Franciscan friars, and over 1,400 Indians. But on July 29, 1704, San Luis was evacuated and burned in the face of an impending attack by British forces from the north. In the 1980s, the state of Florida acquired the hilltop and a plantation-style house built by a previous owner. Today, this building is home to a new state-of-the-art orientation center where visitors enter through three recreated archaeological digs based on actual ongoing excavations around the site. We've tried to recreate the same type of environment that they would encounter if they had walked into an excavation two minutes after the archaeologists had just taken their lunch break. And so they're walking in and they're eight feet below the ground surface at San Luis. Bonnie McEwen is director of archaeology at the mission. First of all, it gives people a sense of what they see in the ground. So in the event that they visit the site and we're not actually excavating, uh, they can see what we've found, but also they can learn about a lot of the principles of archaeology, the different zones and layers, and the cultural affiliations associated with each, as well as the types of archaeological features like posts and pits and, and the types of artifacts that we find as well. Perhaps most compelling is a cutaway view of one of several large pits found on the site, once used for digging out clay for building, then filled with 17th century trash. There's bowls, plates, there's building materials, hardware, beads, you name it, it's in there. 
we get wonderful preservation in these pits, and as a result, they, they really are a treasure trove for us. In the main part of the exhibit, every effort has been made to make history interactive with things that can be touched and felt. In addition to large displays depicting mission life, hundreds more artifacts are housed in pull-out drawers with colorful beads, bones, tools, and pieces of pottery. Karen Stanford is Curator of Education and Historic Sites for the Museum of Florida History. As an example of something that people love to touch for various reasons are pieces of our baptismal font from the church, the 17th century baptismal font, which again, you know, how often can you touch the 17th century? And people really, really relate to that. One of the most popular displays allows visitors to piece together enlarged replicas of pots found at the San Luis site. Even the adults love taking these apart and putting them together and the Ed staff had the good idea of not putting out all the pieces at once so people get a sense of what it's like for archaeologists to not only reconstruct pots but to be frustrated when pieces are missing and they don't have the whole thing in front of them. <laughs> Everything that we added that to make it more interactive, to make it more touchable, to make it more enjoyable for our blind visitors also made it enjoyable for all visitors. So it wasn't like we were accommodating. We actually ended up enhancing the exhibit in ways for everybody and it was just a win-win situation. Stepping outside, visitors can see reconstructions of the Mission Church, some of the Indian structures, and one of the Spanish houses. We're interpreting the period right before the village burned, uh, burned in 1704. It was kind of the height of the growth of the village, uh, the height of the success of the village in many ways. In the center of the grounds is a large open plaza used for outdoor ceremonies and events like the so-called ball game. Mission historian John Hand draws some striking parallels to today's sporting contests. The ball game was a contest that involved probably about 50 or 60 people playing on a ball field uh, with a little deerskin-covered hunk of hard clay that they uh, kicked with their feet to try to hit a goalpost uh, with it or place the ball in an eagle's nest which was at the top of the goalpost. At the time of the Spanish conquest, the Apalachee were a prosperous tribe estimated at nearly 30,000 people. By 1700, their numbers had diminished and the few that were left after the British invasions were assumed to have died out and disappeared from the pages of history. If you had asked any Florida archaeologist five to seven years ago, if there were any living descendants of Florida's prehistoric and mission period Indians, they would have said no. But in 1993, we were contacted by a man named Gilmer Bennett in Louisiana who claimed to be the chief of the Appalachian Indians. And after a concerted amount of research, we found that in point of fact, they are direct descendants of the Appalachian Indians that lived at San Luis and that migrated in 1704, first to Mobile, and then in 1763 on to Louisiana. And they have been able to trace their lineage through parish records in Mobile and in Louisiana. And they have become wonderful friends of our project and they have put a human face on the work that we have done. San Luis Mission archaeologist Bonnie McEwen. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I hope you'll join us again next week and stop by our website at myfloridahistory.org. This and all of the projects and programs of the Florida Historical Society are made possible through member support. Join today by going to myfloridahistory.org 
or by calling 321-690-1971, extension 205. That's 321-690-1971, extension 205. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.